Now, last week as we began to study Genesis 46 and 47, we ended with a, with a verse. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. Let me read this to you. Before I read it to you, I want to give you a heads up. We're going to be a few minutes before we get to chapter 47. Okay? So just relax. We'll get there. And it will all make sense when we do. But Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11 tells us, Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Now, again, last week we ended on this verse, a verse that talks about or speaks of or points to a shepherd ruler. Now, if you just read this verse, you could almost assume that maybe it was talking about Joseph, because that's exactly who and what Joseph was. You may remember Joseph started out his life as a shepherd. That's what he was doing for his father, overseeing his father's flocks, looking after the flocks, the sheep of the house of Israel. But later on, after many adventures that we've studied over the last several weeks, he became a ruler. And I think the shepherding had a lot to do with the ruling later on. He was truly a shepherd ruler, had a shepherd's heart for the people, as we're going to see in chapter 47 tonight. But once again, in this picture of Joseph the shepherd ruler, we get another parallel, another picture, a type of Jesus, who is truly the shepherd ruler. For the first time Jesus came to earth, Matthew chapter 15 verse 24 tells us, Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's what Joseph was doing when he was 17 years old. Going after the sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Jesus did the same. But later on, after many adventures, Jesus in his second coming will be ruler over the entire world. The book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6, tells us, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government, the government, the government will rest on his shoulders. Won't that be a nice break? And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David or over his kingdom and over his kingdom, he will establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus, the shepherd ruler, will rule, the Bible says, right here on earth. Now, I don't know what kind of a background you have as far as end time study or understanding the things that the Bible says about the end times. But what's interesting to me is that the Bible is very clear about where Jesus will rule. That it truly is here on the earth. Now, there are plenty of perspectives out there. I subscribe to one. Now, I'm not saying the others are wrong, but when they figure out that they are, you know, I'll accept any apologies. No, I'm, I'm totally kidding. In Genesis 47, we're going to see tonight Joseph's government over Egypt. But the thing that's interesting to me about it when we get there is that I believe it's another picture of Jesus' government during that time called the Millennium. And I think that will be clear. But again, before we get there, I want you to flip in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. I cannot tell you how important conversations, discussions, and studies like the one we're going to have tonight is or are. These studies are vital and I truly believe make a difference, have a dramatic impact on the way we live our lives now, today, tomorrow, and this week. 
that our understanding of and our, our clear grasp of what the Bible has to say, just the literal scriptural view about the end times, about the rapture, the tribulation, the millennium, things like this, if we truly just shut out all of the philosophies and theologies and ideas of man and just go to the Word and read it for what it says, it makes all the difference in the world. It is understandable. Now again, reading it as it is written, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Now, the word then implies that this is after something else has already happened. Chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation describe what? Does anybody know what happens in chapters 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation? Any guess? Any idea? That's the time called the tribulation. More is written about the seven-year tribulation, God pouring out His wrath on a Christ-rejecting world, than any other time in history in the Bible. All the way from chapter 6 through 19, the book of Revelation clearly and definitively describes this time of tribulation. Now, he begins chapter 20 saying, Then... And the implication here is, again, the tribulation has, has passed, has happened, chapter 6 through 19, if you're just taking it in a logical, chronological order. Then I saw, John says, an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. The Bible goes on. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until how long? The thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now that may make no sense to you at all why he would be released. I'll explain that later. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and lived or reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until... The thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. And they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Six times in this passage, the Bible specifically says that there will be a time of Jesus reigning on earth and Satan bound on earth for a thousand years. Now, there are different perspectives on this, this thousand-year reign of Jesus, this millennium, as it's been called or is called. For centuries, it's been a point of discussion and even controversy in the church. Tonight, if you don't understand or haven't studied these things, I want to give you three primary schools of eschatology. Eschatology is just a fancy word for study of the end. Okay? But three schools of thought regarding this millennium and why I subscribe to one school of thought and what the others say. Just listen to these. The first one... And it's probably good to be familiar with these. First one is post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. Now again, if you've heard these before, this is just a refresher course for a moment, but it's important to understand these before we get back to Genesis. We have to go to the foreground to get to the background. Yeah. So post-millennialism. Here are some things to understand about post-millennial thought. 
Number one, it assumes that Christ, and, and these are things that you can jot down notes, but um, they may, may go by kind of fast, so it may be easier just to listen. Postmillennialism assumes that Christ will come at the end of a thousand years of perfect peace. After it happens, okay? In other words, the, the world will get better and better, and the church will finally get to a point where actually, well, people believe, some people believe that we're in the millennium right now. That the world will be perfect for a thousand years, and at the end of that thousand years, then Christ will arrive. That's when the second coming happens. Post-millennialism assumes that the church herself will usher in the kingdom of God. Just a quick question, how are we doing? I mean, as a church, are we ushering in the kingdom of God? <laughs> or are we spending time arguing about who is where and who's doing what? And It's amazing to me. I, I, I told a few of my friends this week, I'm going to write a book. And it's going to be a book about how churches behave toward one another. And I'm going to call it, We Never Really Left Junior High. It's my idea. It, it, and you know what? I'm not saying that I'm, I'm all good and perfect in this because I have made tremendous mistakes in my life as a, as a pastor. But it's incredible how when we get distracted from the purpose of Jesus and the focus of Jesus, it's amazing how petty we become. And we're all capable of being petty. Are we not? We have all sinned again and fallen short of the glory of God. The church, folks, the church reigning in the kingdom, the church bringing it in, that's what post-millennialism believes, and I'm sorry, but I don't see it. I do believe the Holy Spirit is active in the church. I love the church. I believe in the church in the world today, but the church will not usher in the kingdom. Of course, that's my opinion, but I think it's pretty well backed up by how the church is doing in the world. Postmillennialism also assumes that the governing authority of man is capable of achieving perfect peace and prosperity. How are our governing authorities doing? Not well. The problem with postmillennialism is it assumes too much. It assumes all these things. In fact, it's all but been abandoned by thinking believers today in light of the harsh realities of our world. Although it has experienced the revival of sorts in different lingo, some call it kingdom theology or dominion theology. I have a book that was handed to me a couple months ago. I was just reading through this last, uh, this last week, and there's a chapter in the middle of it that goes point for point, 54 points of dominion theology, and I just read it, and it's, it's like being at a circus. You're jumping from one thing to another, and this is allegory, and this is not, this is actual, and this is metaphorical, and all this stuff. And how do you know? The truth about Scripture is the moment that you decide to make something metaphorical, you might as well make the whole Bible metaphorical, because you cannot determine what is and what is not metaphor or allegory. There is actually one way to determine what are just stories. That's when the Bible tells you that something's an allegory. Like in what we just read, Revelation 20 the serpent, the dragon, the serpent of old. Well, who is that? Well, the Bible says it's the devil and Satan. Well, there's an allegorical picture of Satan, a, a dragon or a serpent. That's a picture, but the Bible tells you exactly what that picture is. But when we go around and try and say that this means that or this means that without any reason for it, man, I can make the Bible say anything I want it to say. Well, the second one is amillennialism. It's post-millennialism. Jesus will show up at the end of this perfect thousand years of peace and prosperity on the earth. second one is amillennialism. And the age simply negates the word millennialism. In other words, there is no millennium. There is no literal thousand-year reign of Christ whatsoever. It doesn't exist. It's spiritualized, again, it's allegorized as basically the church age. It's, it's what we are right now. Um, amillennialism 
states that Revelation 20 is the only chapter in the Bible that specifically references the thousand-year reign of Christ, even though it's repeated six times in that chapter. But, folks, it's not the only book in the Bible that references the millennium. As a matter of fact, on your own time, when you have some time, look up Isaiah chapter 62 and just read from 62 through 66. Read through that portion of Scripture. It is a definitive explanation description of the millennium. Ending with the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, by the way. Toward the end of that section. If you read through it, Isaiah is prophesying, talking about that time. of you know, You've heard the verses, the lion laying down with the lamb. A little child will lead them. And these verses are things that have never ever happened on planet earth, but Isaiah prophesies will happen. They will happen. So, is that spiritualized? Is it allegory? Is it true? Amillennialism tries to fit the thousand year reign of peace into the broader current age of the church. Another problem here, or a problem with amillennialism, is it cannot hold up to the evidence of history and scripture. Let me give you one example. Does Satan seem bound to you right now? In the world in which we live, for an amillennial perspective to be accurate, we would have to assume that Satan is currently right now bound up in chains, unable to affect or evoke any kind of sin or horror on the earth. We have a, a, a word that is a household word now in our country, in our world. Terrorism is a word that would not exist if Satan were bound. So amillennialism, lots of problems with that one, lots of problems with postmillennialism, and so it brings us to premillennialism. The premillennial person takes Revelation 20 at face value, along with the entire book of Revelation, and consequently with the entire Bible. Premillennialism. It applies the literal method of interpretation, again, unless the Bible clearly indicates otherwise. Another example of that is Revelation 19.15. In Revelation 19.15, John says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Now, you could say, okay, a literal interpretation of that is Jesus is going to come back and a sword is going to be shooting out of his mouth. Well, we happen to understand, because of the biblical context, that the sword is the word of God. It's coming out of his mouth because that's what the spoken word does. In context, it's easy to understand these things. Premillennialism seeks a biblical reason for any interpretation that's not literal. If someone says, well, that's a parable, okay, how do you know that? Well, look at what the Bible says about it. It's clear. Premillennialism acknowledges the millennium as a time of fulfillment on God's part of all of his promises to Israel. We just read one a few minutes ago that the government will be on his shoulders and he will reign in a reign of peace. That in Isaiah chapter 9 has never been fulfilled and yet God promises, he prophesies, this is going to happen. Premillennialism believes, as Revelation 20 makes clear, that there can be no lasting peace, no kingdom come, unless or until Christ brings it. Now, in the Republican National Convention, President Bush got up and gave a rousing speech. And as he gave this speech and began to talk about the country, it was a speech filled with hope and filled with ideals. And he said a couple of times in the speech, and, and I struggle with just these two things that he said, and this is not my statement about candidates here. Being a nonprofit organization, I can't tell you, you know, who you should vote for. All I can say, by the way, is would you please check the platforms against Scripture before you go voting? Just do that. Anyway, as he was speaking, there were two times that he said the same thing that really bothered me. He said, and this is not a direct quote, but in essence, we can, as America, restore peace to the world. And I sat there going, no, we can't. No, we can't. 
No country has ever been able to do that. No country will ever do that. There is one ruler, one dictator, if you will, who has that power, and that's Jesus. And until he comes, there will not be peace in the world. It ain't going to happen. I appreciate the optimism, though. A century ago, premillennialists, 100 years back, were called pessimists because they believed that the Bible predicted that the world would get worse and worse and even the church would decay with apostasy. 100 years back, that was pessimism. Today, it's realism. We see it happening around us. Now, with all that understood, Genesis 47. Let's get down to business there. I read and I reread this chapter. And in so doing, I went to a couple of different commentaries. One was saying that this is an example of Joseph being really greedy. Because you're going to see him governing the people and the people coming to him and starving and the way he gives them grain and what he gets for it and all this. That's a bad commentary. Joseph is not greedy. As a matter of fact, everything he does, he does for the king. Everything he does, he does for Pharaoh. But as I read this over and over, some things just began to emerge. A picture began to emerge, as I've already mentioned. I think it's a picture that we can see of that time of the millennium. And we're going to do some comparison of that tonight. I'm going to give you a quick outline. If you follow along with notes, you can jot these down. And this is what we're going to follow tonight. Number one, Joseph's grace toward Israel. Joseph's grace toward Israel. Secondly, Joseph's government over Egypt. Joseph's government over Egypt. His grace toward Israel, his government over Egypt. Number three, we'll look at Joseph's goodness to all people. His goodness to all people. And finally, we'll see Joseph's guarantee to Jacob. Those are your main points, and there will be some sub-points under those as we go. Joseph's grace toward Israel, his government over Egypt, his goodness to all the people, and his guarantee to Jacob. Let's start. Starting in verse 11. We actually went through verse 10 last week. So verse 11 of chapter 47, book of Genesis. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. And in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered, Joseph provided for his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. That word little ones is also translated, probably more accurately translated, families. According to their families. So we see Joseph's grace toward Israel. And he shows them grace two ways. Through provision and through division of the land. He shows his grace in that he provides for them food, but he also puts them in a place. There is the division of the land. They end up in Goshen in the land of Ramses. And in this place, it is the best of all of Egypt. Let me ask you, see if you recall this, what is Egypt a type of in the Bible? You remember? First week of school. Yeah, thank you. The teacher had the answer. Yeah, it's a type of the world. Egypt is a type of the world. Oftentimes, as you look at Egypt, there is a comparison drawn to between Egypt and the world. You know, when, when Abraham went down to Egypt, it was like going down into the world and into fleshly, worldly places before he finally came back up to the promised land. So we have this picture of the world here. And as I said before, I'll say it again, the Bible clearly indicates that the thousand-year reign of Christ will be on planet Earth. It won't be up in heaven. It won't be in some spiritual plane. It will be right here. Here on earth. 
Not a vague spiritual place of the church, or again, of the individual believer, but a tangible kingdom reign on the earth. Now, I, I do want to share with you that this is not what I used to believe. In fact, all the way until about three years ago, I just had some assumptions about what would happen and, and kind of lived that way until I really started to read the Bible and see what the Bible had to say about it. And it really shook up my entire perspective of Jesus coming, of things like the tribulation and the millennium. But the Bible is clear. There is a kingdom reign promised by Messiah in the world. Part of the problem that the Jews, by the way, had when Jesus came the first time is they didn't realize it was the first time. They saw him come, and as he talked about being Messiah, and as that word began to spread, they were looking for the powerful miracles. They were looking for him to reign in the kingdom right then. They didn't understand. They hadn't read the prophets well enough to see that there was a first and a second coming. That Messiah, Isaiah 53 tells us, had to suffer first. That he had to be the suffering servant the first time and literally die for the sins of the people, after which then he would come again and bring that kingdom reign that is promised in so many of the prophets. Now, notice in verse 12, it tells us that Jacob provided for his father according, again, to their little ones. The word for little ones is just a, it's kind of a cute word. It's the Hebrew word taf. T-A-F would be the transliteration. Taf. It's from the Hebrew word tafaf, which means the skipping of little feet. So the Hebrew word for families literally means the skipping of little feet. And that's how you know there's a family, there's little feet skipping around. In the same way that Joseph provides for and gives a place for the people of Israel in that day, in the same way Israel will be given both the best provision and the best position in the millennial kingdom. Listen to this, Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel 47 verse 12 tells us, By the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be food, and their leaves will be for healing. Thus says the Lord God, so you've got provision there in that time of the millennium. Thus says the Lord God, this shall be the boundary by which you shall divide the land for an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions because of Ephraim and Manasseh. And he says, you shall divide it for an inheritance, each one equally with the other. For I swore to give it to your forefathers, and this land shall fall to you as an inheritance. Now if you want to see those divisions, Ezekiel chapter 48 describes the exact divisions of the land that will be given to Israel during the millennium, during that thousand year reign. And it's an interesting chapter just to look through and you can see all 12 tribes and you can actually plot on a map exactly where they'll be and the land that will be given to them, the best land in all the world. These divisions and these provisions are promised and sure. And once again, Israel will be given the best of the land. So, that's the first one, Joseph's grace toward Israel. Secondly, Joseph's government over Egypt. Verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Gang, the world in Joseph's day had been devastated because of the famine. The seven-year famine, which, what is the seven-year famine a picture of? The tribulation, seven years of the tribulation. They're busy tonight. 
the beginning of the millennium there will be a time of healing by the way Daniel describes an amount of days that go beyond the seven years kind of a, a time in between the tribulation and the millennium where there will be healing where there will be rebuilding where there will literally be the Bible describes topographical changes in Jerusalem this is interesting to note that Jerusalem itself appears to be raised up and there will be changes all around and there will be a river flowing out of the city Anyway, that's interesting. It's another topic for another time. Sometimes I, I just get off on those things. But Joseph's government over Egypt. Let me give you four things to notice here about how he brings everything to the throne. And this is Joseph's purpose. He's reining everything in under the control of Pharaoh and at the same time providing for the people. Watch how he does it. The first thing he does is be, he begins with their purse. Their purse. P-U-R-S-E. Okay? Verse 14. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. First thing the people did was they came and said, Hey, we're starving, we're famished, we're devastated. We need help here, Joseph. And Joseph says, Bring in your money and I will sell you the grain. And he began to draw in all the money from the land. It came from everywhere. He gathered it all in. And folks, in so doing, he solved a major problem that Egypt had at the time money. Jesus will do the same thing in the millennium. I told Cheryl today, won't it be wonderful? We won't have money issues. We won't have money concerns. We won't have to be tracking everything. You know, everything we do costs something. Every time I call Niccolo, it costs me... No, I'm kidding. It doesn't cost me. But I, I think I shared with some of you the, the joke that we have running. Every time I say to Niccolo, hey, can we move this door over to here? How much would that cost? And he says $2,000. Okay, well, what if we extended the deck in the back about three feet? How much would that cost? Well, that's $2,000. <laughs> and every time I turn around, you think, we want to uh, put an electrical outlet in the laundry room with a special... Uh, you know, outlet there. Can we do that? Sure. $2,000. Won't it be great when we don't have money issues at all? Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 and 2. You may have heard the verse before. It starts out, Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Buy? I don't have any money. How can I buy? Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. In Jesus' reign, money is a non-entity. It will not exist. Stocks and bonds won't be there. Think about stocks and bonds for a minute. What do they do but they get your head in the stocks and put you in bondage? And that's what happens with those. Money. We fight about it. We struggle for it. We, it's, it's, it's the greatest problem probably that we face in all the world. And so Joseph kind of reigns the whole thing in. Reigns in their purses. And in the same way, money is not going to be an issue in the millennium under Jesus' government as well. Secondly, Joseph reigns in their possessions. Their possessions. First he gets their purse. Now he's got their possessions. Verse 15. When the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food, for why should we die in your presence? For our money is gone. And Joseph said, Give up your livestock. This is a bull market. That's what was going on here. Give up their stocks. And... Okay. Give up your livestock, he said. 
and I will give you food for your livestock since your money is all gone. Verse 17, so they brought their livestock to Joseph. And Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses and the flocks and the herds and the donkeys. And he fed them with the food in exchange for all of their livestock that year. So first year, they have to give up all their money so they can survive. Second year now, they've given up all their possessions, their livestock. So that they can survive. He's reining it in. Their purse and their possessions. And isn't it amazing how quickly our possessions can possess us? As we strive for more and more in this world, the things we strive for take control of our lives and we are all susceptible at every level of ownership. The more stuff you own, the more your stuff owns you. in between the flying. It's a little difficult. There's a solution, by the way, to the stress of our stuff. We all stress about it, worry about it. You buy the brand new shiny car and then you have to park it in the far end of the parking lot so you can walk into the store so it doesn't get a scratch on it. It's a big pain. I think what we all ought to do, buy a new car, key it, and then we're fine. Everything's good. Just move on. There is a solution to the stress of our stuff. Two words. Garage sale. <laughs> get rid of it. Joseph's got the people giving up their possessions, and in so doing, they have less stuff to worry about. And that's one of the most amazing truths of all, is that the less we have, the less we have to worry about. I went to Honduras, took several kids down there a few different times, and I'll never forget Meredith. Meredith was a young girl. This is when I was living in Fairfax, Virginia. And by the way, Fairfax, Virginia is one of the wealthiest places in America. The cost of living at that time was, was hugely, well, it was, I, don't, I can't even tell you how much it was. It was more than just about anywhere else we had ever lived. And there in Fairfax, we took this group of very wealthy kids down to Honduras, and they had an experience there that blew them away. And I'll never forget the Sunday night after we got back, we're talking in front of the church, and the kids are all lined up, the teens, and they're sharing their experience. And Meredith stood up. And this is very, very quiet, almost mousy girl. She never really spoke or said anything. But in front of the whole church, she just said, with big tears in her eyes, she said, they had nothing, but they just seemed so happy. I have everything, and I'm so unhappy. And in that moment, I thought, that's it. It's our stuff. Our possessions possess us. And the more we have, the more we have to worry about. Well, next... Joseph comes and he buys up all their property. He's got their purses and their possessions and now their property. Before I go on, a point about Jesus and the millennium when it comes to possessions. Why would Jesus take all the money out of the way? Why would he ask for possessions? Why would he clear us of those things? Can you hear me when I just keep talking even when it's blasting? Huh? So it's loud enough? Can you turn it up a bit? You want me to? Because I can talk in the mic, too. I'm sorry. This is just life at the barn. It is the sound of freedom. And I appreciate the sound. Any other time. Okay. How's that? Got a lot better? All righty then. Good. <laughs> okay, where were we? Oh, why would Jesus do this? Why would he get rid of money, and in comparison to Joseph, why would he rein in possessions? Because Jesus' purpose is to train people to dependence. When he's here during that thousand year reign of peace and prosperity, there will be your average people living in the world, people who are ushered into the kingdom. 
people who survived the tribulation, Jews mostly, you and I, by the way, will not be living as just average human beings at that time. Because the rapture, if you follow the chronological course of Revelation, the rapture happens first. In fact, that's the next thing to look forward to on God's prophetic program. That's the next thing that's supposed to happen. After that happens, the tribulation for seven years, and then we return with Jesus, rule and reign with Him, during that time of the millennium. We're already in our glorified bodies. Good news, you can't sin anymore. So when you come back, you're not going to mess up your eternity. You're already locked in with Jesus. That's great news. But all these things, the money and the possessions, all this stuff, doesn't really have a whole lot to do with us. It has to do with your average human beings who will be living on planet Earth at the time. Isn't it weird to think that you're not going to be a human being? I mean, you are, but you aren't. You know, we're talking about it today. Does that mean if, if Jesus is in Jerusalem reigning from there, and I'm, say, serving on, oh, I don't know, Maui, and, and I think, oh, I need to talk to the Lord, do I just go, to the Lord, boom, and I'm there? I would assume. We're not bound by time, and we're not bound by space, and all the properties we're bound by now. Anyway, that's, that's again, another conversation, and we can get into that, and it's fun to kind of to talk about those things. But Jesus will be working with people and on people during that thousand-year reign, training them to dependence. It's what God did with the people of Israel in the 40 years in the desert, training them to dependence. So, possessions and purses. Now, number three, he buys up all their property, verse 18. When that year was ended, they came to him the next year, and they said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent, and the cattle are my Lord's. There's nothing left for my Lord except our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? They say, Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Verse 20, So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every Egyptian sold his field because the famine was severe upon them, and thus the land became Pharaoh's as well. So their purses, their possessions, now their property, and why buy up the land? Because if you look at human history, what does land do? It divides us. Fights over land. Who owns what? India and Pakistan. How long have they been battling over a little piece of land called Kashmir? And battling with nukes pointed at each other. Now you look at that and you think, that's ridiculous. How important is it? It's just a city. Somebody just roll the dice. Give it to one of them. But they battle over it constantly. And what about the greatest piece of land fought over and argued about anywhere in the world? Jerusalem. Talk about a city divided. If you just look at old Jerusalem, the old city is divided into four different quarters. You've got the Christian quarter, and the Jewish quarter, and the Muslim quarter, and the Armenian quarter. So nobody can agree, so we've got separate quarters, even within the old city of Jerusalem, this constant division. There are many people who think, by the way, that the solution to the Israeli-Palestinian crisis, the problem, will be partially internationalizing the city of Jerusalem. Make it an international city. All the countries of the world will have a vested interest in this city. You know why that won't work? I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, because Islam won't stand for it. You see, in the Quran it teaches that if a Muslim or a group of Muslims take by force some land and then later lose that land, they are bound by Allah to get that land back. As a matter of fact, they are an abomination to Allah until they recover that land. 
So if you take away, which has already happened, Jerusalem from Islam, from the Muslims, they've got to fight to get it back because in their religion, in their thinking, in Muhammad's teaching, they're an abomination to their God as long as Jerusalem is in the hands of somebody else. No wonder the fight is so severe. No wonder kids and teenagers are strapping bombs around their waist and going into Jerusalem and blowing themselves up. Because they're an abomination to their God. Would you like to serve a God like that? Not me. But here's the real deal. I said there were two problems with the idea. The other problem is that Jerusalem is God's city, not the world's. It is literally the only city on planet earth that God has claimed for himself. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6. God says, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. It is the center point city of all scripture. There are hundreds of verses about Jerusalem in the Bible and about God's desire for his holy city. You know how many times Jerusalem is mentioned in the Quran, by the way? Not once. Not a single time. But it is the centerpiece of scripture as far as God is concerned, as far as cities are concerned in the planet. Joel chapter 3 verse 16 says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. So Jerusalem will be holy and strangers will pass through it no more. And so Joseph has their pocketbooks or purses. He has their possessions, their property, and even, number four, their persons. They've even now given themselves to Joseph as, as slaves. As for the people, verse 21, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. He bought their land. He bought them. Now they are all owned by the king. And he has done this thing. Now, think back for a second to the Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. There was a problem with Babel. And the problem wasn't so much that men were gathering together to build a big tower. Men build towers all the time. That wasn't the issue. The issue was they were gathering together, clumping up in one place, to build for themselves a monument to themselves and to all humanity. The problem was God told Noah, in no uncertain terms, go, spread out, be fruitful, multiply upon the earth. But instead of following God's command and spreading out, they clumped up. They went in. They drew close together. We do it all the time. It's human nature. In fact, if you've ever flown on an airplane across America, have you ever done that and had the chance to, to look down as you're flying? Massive, massive, empty places of, of land. And then all of a sudden, light, little cities clumped up all together. And then massive land. People talked about years ago the population explosion and what a problem it was going to be when we ran out of land for people. There's land everywhere. The problem is in our inner cities, yeah, we've run out of room there. But it's natural human tendency for us to clump up and God says spread out. Why is that? <laughs> well, because the more we clump up, the more we stink. The more we spread out, the more we can do. We're like manure. Spread it out and it does a lot of good. Put it in a big pile and it stinks. God wants his people spread out. It's why Jesus said, go into all the world. Make disciples of every nation. Don't stay in one place. Spread out. Take the gospel message out. Isaiah chapter 42 verse 5. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out. Who spread out the earth and its offspring. 
who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness, and I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you, listen to this, as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Now we use that term for Christians all the time. You're a city on a hill. You're a light for all people. That's Christians, right? Not originally. The first light to the nations was Israel. God's primary intention for Israel was to be the light for the nations. To be sent out. To save the world. And then ultimately for Christ to come through them. God knew their hearts and knew that that wouldn't happen. But they were the first ones called to be a light to the nations. You can't be a light to the nations when you're all clumped up and staying in one place. You've got to spread out. Now, in the kingdom, I believe Jesus will be saying, spread out, be fruitful, multiply, repopulate the earth, spread out upon the planet. Don't stay clumped up in one place. And so, Joseph, like I believe Jesus will, now has their purses and he has their possessions and he has their property and he has their very persons. There's one more thing you can jot down here. It's a problem. The problem is the pagan priests. Because for all that Joseph has reigned in, there's a group of people here who he does not reign in. Verse 21 says, As for the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh. And they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today brought you in your land, or bought you in your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you that you may sow in the land. Where am I here? One of the tragedies of the millennium is that there will still be rebellion growing quietly in people's hearts. See, in, in Egypt at the time, though all the people now are under the control of Pharaoh, there was one group that wasn't, and that was the pagan priests. And there's a picture there too, because in the millennium, in the millennium, there will be rebellion. You may think, that's ridiculous. Satan is bound. Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. The world is, has perfect prosperity. It's going to be as close to Eden as it has ever been. The entire world. Why would anybody rebel? Because rebellion is in the heart of every human. Because rebellion is part of our nature. Interesting, Zechariah chapter 14 verse 16 tells us that it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem now will go up from year to year during the millennium to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the feast of booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Zechariah is telling us the truth, and some people might say, well, that doesn't sound very fair. There's a big festival, and you're telling me if I happen to live in America and I don't go to the festival once a year that I don't get any rain? That's right. Well, that's not fair. Hey, I'm not God. This is his job. This is his rule. This is his government. And he says that there will be no rain. There will be a drought. As I said before, guys, the Lord is not only developing a dependency, he's also proving a point. And that's this. Listen closely. In Jesus' perfect reign, in this millennial paradise, people will still have rebellion in their hearts. Because the heart of man is sinful. And that is why Satan is let out at the end of the millennium. A thousand years of perfect peace. Everything's great. It couldn't be better. God is going to show the world what it is like to live under His complete and absolute authority. 
for the world to be able to see and for us to know for all eternity. You know, we say right now, if only Jesus were the one reigning, if he were running for president, America would be great. Everything would be fine. If he was in charge, it would be great. And to a degree, that's right. But as long as man has the ability to choose, has that rebellious heart inside of him, there will be a problem. And Revelation chapter 20 verse 7 gives us one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture. After a thousand years of perfection and paradise, at the end of that time, Satan is loosed and literally an unnumbered amount of people will rebel and follow him one last time against God. Even after all that, there will be people saying, I don't want to do what Jesus says. How come he rules over us like this? Why is he always in charge? Why do we have to do what he says? Why do we have to go up there? What's this beast of boots? Yeah, we didn't go that one year and we got struck with drought and that stung. That was no good. That's not fair. Folks, we even see that drought verse, by the way, play out in the world today. People say, I don't have to read the word. I don't have to have any Christian fellowship. I don't have to go up to worship. You're right. You don't have to. But you're probably going to have drought. You will probably experience famine in your life without that connection to the Father. So not everybody had their purses, possessions, property, and, and uh, purses brought before the throne. The pagan priests didn't, and they give us a picture of the rebellion that happens even in the millennium. Now, stick with me here for a minute and think about this. If this is a picture of the millennium, why is God commandeering everything people have? Why is he taking it all? Why would Jesus do this? Take the money and the possessions, everything that we've listed. The bottom line here, and it is the same principle that's true for our lives today. People need to learn that it's all about Christ. That everything comes back to Jesus. That everything belongs to Jesus. That truly there's nothing we think we own or have or possess that is truly ours, even our very persons. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, all things have been created through him and for him. Now listen to this, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 8. Listen closely because this is some Pauline language and, and you got to hear it. Sometimes hard to understand. He says, In all wisdom and insight... He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view looking ahead to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Paul says that's the deal. That's where everything's headed. The summing up of everything in Jesus. All things coming back to the throne. All things being drawn in. Joseph is doing this for Pharaoh. He's doing it for the king. He's bringing everything to the throne. The money, the possessions, the land, the people, all of it. He is bringing it in and he is, he's not doing it for himself. He doesn't have a selfish motive here. But Joseph is doing this for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh becomes king over everybody, over everything. And as this goes on, we see this picture of Jesus doing the same thing in the millennium. Bringing it all to the throne, all before the Father. Everything summed up, brought to Jesus. Now, remember Sunday we talked about the saved people being able to give a blessing. And that was because we are a royal priesthood. That the priests give the blessing. And we're a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. And that's literally the choice that we have today. The pagan priesthood or the royal priesthood. It's one or the other, and you can choose which one you want to choose. The royal priest 
is the one who gives up purse, possession, property, and person to the Lord. The pagan gives up nothing. The pagan priesthood holds what they have, keeps their land, keeps their stuff, doesn't give it up. It's mine. But truly to be a royal priest is to give everything over to God. Folks, I believe to whatever degree we give up and give in to Jesus and the authority of his throne, that's how much we will enjoy him, both in the kingdom to come and even today. Look at verse 23 again. Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you that you may sow in the land. So Joseph gives the people seed to raise up grain and fruit, and the same works in our hearts today, especially when we're banished. We bring everything to the Lord, we hand it over to Him, we, we say, well, I don't want the control, the authority of all these things, and as we hand it over, He gives us seed that grows fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5 tells us. And if you want to enjoy the sweet spiritual fruit, if you want to enjoy the complete satisfaction of God the Father, if you want kingdom level satisfaction, like will be possible in the millennium, you can have that today by bringing everything that you are to Jesus. Because when everything comes under the, the authority of Christ, life is sweet. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 tells us our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that He has even subject all things to himself. Well, the third thing we see in Joseph's life, we talk about his grace to Israel and then his government, we see his goodness to all the people. Verse 23 again. He says, I have bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you that you may sow in the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. And four fifths shall be your own seed of the field for your food and for those of your households and as for food for your little ones. Verse 25, so they said, you've saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And so Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day, that is to the time of this writing, that Pharaoh should have the fifth, only the land of the priests did not become Pharaoh's. The fifth. In other words, 20% of everything that anybody ever got from there on out became Pharaoh's. And you know what's interesting? The people had no problem with that whatsoever. Because when you're famished and you become fed, you don't really worry about your stuff anymore. When you're starving and food is given to you and seed is given to you and grain is given to you and, and you find that you can survive because someone is compassionate and graceful and merciful, then your possessions don't matter so much. And so it was a 20-80 principle. They kept 80%. Pharaoh got 20%. They obviously didn't have any problem giving. Now... It's interesting to me that when you look at this, what they gave was a double tithe, 20%. A tithe is 10%, and make sure you understand that, because I hear people all the time saying, yeah, I gave my tithe, you know, and, and I've heard people use that as just a word for giving. Well, tithe isn't a word for giving, it's, it's a word for percentage. It means 10%. So if you're giving 10%, great, say you gave your tithe. If you're not, just say you're giving and, and let that be it. But a tithe is what God has offered or asked us to trust him with in the Bible. Give me the first 10% and see if I don't open up the storehouses of heaven and provide for you, he says. 
It's interesting that the only people who didn't get to the throne were the pagan priests. But going back, verse 27, Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they were acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And when the time for Israel to die drew near, he called to his son Joseph. Now, hold on for a second. I just want to point something out. In the millennial picture, the people of Israel grew and they grew and they prospered greatly. And things were going well for them under Joseph's grace, as it will go well for Israel in that time of the millennium. But let me remind you of something we said Sunday, that the Lord has given Jacob another 17 years here to be with Joseph. And this is such a beautiful picture of the heart of a father. Joseph was 17 years old when he was taken away from his father. And now that his father was 130 years old, he comes down to Egypt, he sees Joseph, and instead of dying right away, God gives him 17 more years as if to make up for the lost time, as if to say, you had 17 years, let me give you 17 more. Now, there's something else here that's interesting to me, and I don't know if I'm, if I'm just reading into this, but it seems like the amount of time here that Joseph spent with his dad as a kid was the amount of time that he got to spend with him later. And I wonder if there's something to that spiritually, that the amount of time that we spend with God now in this life will affect the amount of time, the intimacy, the closeness that we have with the Father in the life to come. That the closer I get to God right now, I will be able to be that close to Him in all eternity, to draw even nearer to Him. Well, Joseph is good to all the people. Number four, we see Joseph's guarantee to Jacob, verse 29. He called his son Joseph, Jacob did, and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh. Now this wasn't a weird thing. We've talked about this before. This was a symbol of covenant. Placing the hand under the thigh was a way of saying, you know, you're not gonna, I'm not letting your hand out from under the thigh until you promise me you're going to do what you're going to do. You've got to follow through here. And so he said, Place your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and in faithfulness. Please, listen to this, please, do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And Joseph said, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. And then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Why is it so important to Jacob to be buried back in Israel or in, at, at that time Canaan? Why does he want this? He says to his son Joseph, bury me with my fathers. He's talking about that cave in Machpelah where Abraham and Sarah were buried, where Isaac was buried with Rebekah, and where Jacob ultimately would be buried with one of his wives as well. Bury me back there. Don't bury me. Don't leave me. Don't bury me here in Egypt. And as we'll see in the last couple of chapters of Genesis, when Jacob dies, there's a funeral procession all the way from Egypt back to Canaan to bury him there. Why? Why is it so important for Jacob to be buried there? The expectation of resurrection. Jacob expects to be resurrected and when that happens he wants to be resurrected right there in the land that was guaranteed to him. That by the way is the hope of the Old Testament. The hope of the Old Testament is an earthly hope 
It's in hope that I will be resurrected, an Old Testament saint would say, right here in the land. God promised us the land. He said the land was ours eternally, forever. And so the hope of Abraham and his faith and the hope of Isaac and his faith and Jacob and his faith was that one day they would be resurrected to life in Canaan's land where they would live, where they would have peace. Where they would be given a place promised to them by God. Hebrews chapter 11 and 12 tell us that they all died without receiving that promise. None of them received the promise that God gave them. That they would own, that they would live in the land. You may recall as we studied Abraham, he never owned any of the land except for that cave in Machpelah. That's the only bit he owned, that burial site. But as rich and well off as Abraham the sojourner was, he never bought up land in Egypt. Or in Canaan. And why is that? Because he expected to be given the land by God. Not in his lifetime, but at a resurrection. And the Old Testament is this, this bodily resurrection of the promises of God in the land, or to the promises in the land. It was the kingdom of Messiah they looked forward to here on earth. And that's why Jacob wanted to be buried there. That's the hope of the Old Testament, an earthly hope. But listen, the hope of the New Testament is an eternal hope. It's a different hope that we have. Eyes wide open to what Jesus has done. Paul says in Titus 2.13 that we are to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What's the blessed hope? It's the rapture. It's that time when we will be pulled out, eternally taken to be with Jesus. Look for that, that blessed hope and, he says, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus the hope of the New Testament. It's being caught up in the blink of an eye when Christ calls. And for me, for you, it won't matter if we live in Colorado or Canaan's land. It won't matter if we live in Toronto or Timbuktu. It won't have any effect as to what happens when we are raptured, when we are called up. It won't matter if I'm buried here or anywhere else because at the moment of Jesus' calling, we go straight to be with Him in the clouds and so to live with Him forever. That's the New Testament hope. But for the Old Testament saints, it was the land. It was the promised land that they hoped for, an earthly hope. And they say, so what about us in this whole millennium? Where is the church? Where do we reside? Where do we exist? Revelation 1.6 says, He has made us to be a kingdom. Priests to, to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And Revelation chapter 20 verses 4 and 6 John writes, I saw the thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. Judgment was given to them. To who? I believe to the church. Paul would say in another place that don't you realize we're even going to judge the angels? The judgment will be given to the people of Christ to rule and to reign with Him. Revelation 20 verse 6, they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. It's expectation of resurrection. That's the hope that we have. That's what we live with. That's what we're wanting. That's where Jacob's faith, by the way, ended up looking for the reign of the shepherd king. And folks, if I can be of any help in Messiah's administration... Count me in.